Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action verb. Understanding their backstory is vital in order to be able to. This create. is the actor's mind. What are we called? Welcome to the actor's, actor's mind. Well, I like that. Do you want to say it this time? Yeah. Okay, I do. do it. Do I it. I didn't do realize it. I did until you asked. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to our fourth episode of The Actor's Mind. This one is on presence. My name is Anne. I'm a theater professor, actor, director, and producer. And my name is Katiri. I am a psychology researcher, instructor, uh, etc. <laughs> at the University of Denver. If someone asked you to define presence, someone who has presence maybe stage presence, uh, what would you answer? Um, They're present in the moment, and their mind has not wandered anywhere else. They are where they are, dealing with their environment. Um, I'd say that they're fully connected to their partner and uh, and, and their relationship between them, so that they're not focused on anything else but that. Presence, I think, is having the real thoughts of your character and uh, really having the experiences that they're having on stage while reacting to what's happening. Presence, to me, I believe, is the ability to fully live in the truth of a character on stage. With a strong stage presence, um, I believe it's not demanding the audience to look at you, more that you are so invested in the character um, that the audience invests with you. A container that's big enough to hold many different styles and um, so that when you fill it with a confidence and an ease, which I think is also very important to that stage presence, you aren't just necessarily filling a container that's an everyday uh, shape that the, the, the shape of the character of the play itself um, could be wildly different than real life. But an actor with great stage presence, I think, fills that container as if it were their everyday real life. When I think about actors who have really great stage presence, the thing that I think unifies them is that they have simultaneously really broad big picture awareness and also laser focused precision of awareness. So words I think of when I think of stage presence are energy and focus. When people are noticeably present on stage means that they are completely in the moment. Um, They're drawing the audience into their experience, um, not letting them get distracted by everything else that's going on. That's such an incredibly complex question. I I guess the only way I've been able to articulate it to students is to talk about what happens when you watch a child or an animal on stage. They're completely present. They're there. They're taking in everybody and everything that's happening. So everything's included. And if they have a task in the play, they may... (laughs) go through that task but if if they do they'll do it in including all the information that's happening it's complete aliveness to the situation in all of its layers you just heard the voices of Deb Hulkgren Matthew Jones, Kenzie Kilroy Anthony Adu, Isaiah Adams Mayor Trevathan, 
Adeline Mann, Molly Carter, Ren Schuyler, and Gareth Sachs. We are super lucky to be joined today by my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Talia Goldstein. Talia is an assistant professor of applied developmental psychology at George Mason University, and her work focuses on children's developing social and emotional skills, particularly theory of mind, empathy, emotional control and regulation, which is how we met, uh, and how such skills interact with children's engagement in things like pretend play, theater, drama, and other imaginative activities. She directs the SIT Lab, the SSIT Lab, which stands for Social Skills, Imagination, and Theater Lab, and has previously conducted research at uh, Boston College, Yale University, and Pace University throughout the course of her training and career. Dr. Goldstein's research has been funded by the National Science Foundational, the National Science Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, John Templeton Foundation, Arts Connection, and Department of Homeland Security, a very eclectic uh, <laughs> mm. group of funding sources. Her research has been published in a bunch of empirical journals, and she's currently um, an editor of the APA Division 10 journal, Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts. Before she attended graduate school, she also worked as a professional actress and dancer in New York City. So she has expertise coming out the wazoo. Indeed. Um, I was about to say coming out both ends, but that's a little crass. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Talia. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. Awesome. We're thrilled to have you. So I think we have a question for you. Yeah. So we wanted to start off. Uh, we're starting with the hardest question, right? It's like a dissertation defense. Um, awesome. That is, we want to ask you, from your point of view, what is presence? If someone just ran up to you in the street, uh, Billy on the <laughs> street style, and stuck, stuff a mic microphone in your face, what does presence go? <laughs> so I think... Presence is the way in which um, people are presenting themselves or which aspects of themselves they are presenting to in the social world. So we all have a sense of presence that we have uh, when we're, say, at work, which is one form of presence, which is a professional presence, something that is um, emotionally appropriate to the situation that you're in, behaviorally appropriate to the situation that you're in. And that will most likely be different than the type of presence you have when you're at home with your family, right? You might be a little emotionally uh, more free at home with your family than you are at work. You may be sillier or goofier with your children than you are with your adult colleagues, for example. And so I think presence is the way in which um, different aspects of ourselves, different aspects of our personality uh, come out depending on what the constraints are of the situation. Um, and I think for the most part, it's a good thing, right? We all have to yeah. play different roles in different areas of our life, but it can get away from us. And so yeah. part of that is also being aware of the way in which you're presenting yourself and, and the way in which yourself interacts with the, with the situation that you're in. I love it. I love it. That's that's so exciting. And it, to me, it ties into stage presence, which is the, the next thing we're going to talk about briefly. And this idea that there's a public presence and a private presence, and that presence is, is extremely dynamic in a way, right? It's not static at all. And that it's both a noun and a verb. You present yourself and you have presence. Yeah. And that it's, in, it's transactional, right? It's between the person and the mm, environment, yeah. um, which also makes it like, you know, 
the ideal question for like to, to, to toss into a ring of any psychologist <laughs> and be like, explore and, more about this. Cause there'll be like a whole camp, like tugging on the personal part and a whole camp tugging on the environmental part. Yeah. And it all comes together it's, into beautiful, confusing wonderfulness. It, Talia, did you want to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, it also ties into the idea of sort of inner state and what's happening inside of you as compared to what you're showing to the world, right? Because there are times in which, which very much ties into acting theory and acting performance. There are times in which it's very easy to match your inner state with the presence that you're showing to the world, right? You're sort of relaxed and you're, you, you, you are feeling the situation in a way that feels really good. And then there are situations in which that's just not possible where your inner state isn't matching the behavior that you have to be showing. And and that can be unhealthy in in many different ways. And you have to figure out a way to maneuver through and around that, which I think um, everybody learns how to do throughout development. Um, And then actors in particular learn how to do because they have to put themselves into a state of of character being. Right. And we might, actors could call that uh, internal obstacle, internal conflict, right? Sometimes, like you say, they match and then sometimes there's an obstacle between those two. Like you want to cover up. Uh, the your internal state or what you're feeling. Um, so let's continue with this discussion uh, for just the purposes of organizing. There are so many different ways to talk about presence, and it feels like both a wonderful question for psychologists and actors and a horrible question because there's so <laughs> many different uh, doorways into it. Uh, Kateri and I decided to break it into two parts. We're actually going to focus more on the second part. But briefly, the first part we're going to call stage presence. When an actor has stage presence, the audience wants to watch them. The audience is compelled, engaged, drawn into watching that performance. So what is that actor doing? Uh, I don't think it's any one thing, but they are within the constraints. So psychologists like this word constraints. It's not something actors use a lot, but I love this word. Within the constraints of the play world or the character's play world, that actor is succeeding, right, in playing, using a bunch of different acting tools, uh, using physicality, using voice, uh, letting the language work for you, using all the analysis of obstacles, objectives, given circumstances to correctly, successfully uh, share the world of the play, right, with the audience. And then I think there's a second half, which is the actor, the human being standing on stage, is stage presence, is doing something with, with his or her body to share this story in a heightened way, perhaps a compressed way, a clear way with, with the audience. I'm going to call that stage presence. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think when we didn't think about it, when we broke it down into these two things, but maybe part one is a little bit more external and part two is a little bit more internal, right? Mm -hmm. So part one is a little bit, well, is a little bit more, how well are you doing the communication part of storytelling? Um, It, you know, you might be able to give a form to everyone sitting in the audience and say, you know, how, how good was this person's stage presence? Um, I've, I've actually done this. So actually my first many years, my husband and I were, um, adjudicators for a couple of different high school musical theater, um, awards programs where we had to fill out really detailed evaluation forms of performers. And, um, and, and for several years, my husband actually ran the one here in, in Denver and there's literally like a, an evaluation of presence. And then you have to have comments on that. Um, and I think for, for the most part, when people talk about that first piece, that sort of ability to reach that kind of heightened state, the awareness that you have a communicative job as well as a, 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 a a psychological job, um, especially I think at, at 
more beginning stages of theater. It's more like, does this person realize they're on stage, right? Like, are they, mm-hmm. are they turning around? Like, are, are they, are they cheating out? Mm-hmm. You know, are they projecting? Are they doing all of the things that says, this isn't just my normal everyday life. This is, this is a, a different kind of place. So it's that, it's that recognition of the really gross change in environment as right. like, I am on stage now. Um, and it's, I think it's so interesting too. first, I just wanted to say that, um, I, I, I too, as a psychologist, love the word constraints, but, um, <laughs> you, you, and you used a few words that, uh, given circumstances and also, you know, the term imaginary circumstances, that's mm-hmm. basically what we're talking about when we talk about constraints, right? What are the given circumstances of a situation? Right. Um, but I was, um, Kateri, to what you were talking about with, you know, are these people aware that they're on stage? It's such a delicate balance um, because uh, different genres of theater have different um, given circumstances or different constraints of what is uh, typical behavior, right? right? The sort of heightened presentational style of um, uh, the scene that leads into a big musical theater number is very different than the realism, the emotional realism that you're supposed to have in a Tennessee Williams play versus something like a Tony Kushner play, right? Where you have this heightened language of and, and magic that can burst through the ceiling at any moment. So I think that it's a it's a difficult balance to figure out what emotional realism looks like yeah in those situations what the act what the audience will read as naturalistic and realistic yes. right because historically every age every era of theater claims that its actors are the most realistic yes. are the most naturalistic when we go back and look at you know, production photos or films of early melodrama or early stage drama, there's writing to suggest that people at the time thought that their actors were super naturalistic and really portraying the truth of life on stage. And yet from our 2018 eyes, it looks kind of ridiculous and overly right. dramatic. And, you know, melodrama is sort of laughably over the top, right? It, it, it is its own thing at this point. So I think the balance of you know, what world am I in? What genre am I in? And then what are the norms of what the audience are expecting? All has to be taken into account when an actor is trying to decide how to physicalize an inner state. I love all of that. I agree. There's a history professor here on campus named uh, Ingrid Taig, and one of her uh, expertise, one of her knowledge areas is this sort of subjective sense of realism in portraiture and painting. And Um, she has many examples of sort of what we would see as not real at all. Like maybe a woman in real life being sort of having a face that's her pockmarked, but her portrait is this like gorgeous, clean skinned woman. And people seeing that as real because they knew her to be a woman of upstanding character. And that is, that is in some ways you could argue real, right? As a, as a representation of who this woman is. The one other thing I want to say is I feel strongly to my dying day, I will defend that any theater, no matter how quote unquote naturalistic, must be slight, slightly heightened from real life. So I, I have seen plays that feel like they are truly mimicking real life and I find them boring. They, they make me, they upset me because <laughs> I think <laughs> this is not worth putting on a stage. The second you put it on a stage, 
the presence of that story and those characters has to be slightly, it has a different frequency than when I'm hanging out at home with my family. Well, and this is this is why things like cinema verite are only ever studied in graduate film seminars and not mm-hmm. sort of at your downtown theater with 24 screens. Right. Because cinema verite has nothing heightened to it. It is just supposed to be the, the reflection of real life without any sort of, um, you know, taking the storyline or the story arc and pushing it together in time or having people be actually presentational in the way that they're acting. And it's super boring. It's not what people would ever choose to pay for. So I I agree that, that there has to be some level of presentational. Um, and, and I, I'm really curious to think about, um, what would happen if we sort of varied each level of that, right? If you were supposed to be realistic in emotion, but not in body or realistic in body, but not emotion. It would take a pretty talented actor to be able to separate out those parts. Right. Um, but from a scientific perspective, I'm right. very curious about what it is that an audience is picking up on when they say, oh, that person has charisma, that person doesn't. Right. That yeah. actor is really compelling. That other actor is less compelling. Yeah. Is there something systematic about the performative nature of the actor? Is it just personal preference? Is it how deeply the actor is feeling the, 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 you know, scene that they're playing on stage? Is it how aware are they of the audience? I mean, it's really from an empirical perspective, from a psychological perspective, it's a super open question that I don't think we have clean answers on. And I think that it, again, the other question I would have is where is there more agreement amongst observers, amongst audience members about something like, what we're talking about is this first definition that maybe not entirely, but maybe could be used interchangeably with something like charisma, right? Like do nine out of 10 people in a room go, yep, she's got more charisma than her. But when it comes to something like authenticity, that maybe there's less agreement about what that is, because maybe that's a little bit more dependent on, you know, uh, norms and things like that. And I'm super, I don't want to get super sidetracked by what you were saying about history, but part of my brain, when you were talking about that sort of every era insisting that they have the most authentic performances is, is that like a, is that a, 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 a theatrical norm that has been slowly catching up to sort of reality or are there also, shifting cultural norms about like what it is to experience and express emotions that are also Mm. like moving around. And so do the, do the stage norms actually reflect some sort of real life norms, like either in a positive way, even in a, in a reflective way, like that's how people behave or in some sort of like symbolic way where maybe there's a society that actually is quite buttoned down in terms of like expressing emotion. But then if you go to the theater and people have these really exaggerated displays, are people going, that's what I really feel like inside. I just can't show it. Oh, that is so interesting, particularly when you think about like Japanese no theater or ancient Greek theater or modern American theater. I love this idea that maybe um, maybe what's happening is the sort of overly symbolic or, you know, purposefully uh, really intense uh, display of emotion in order to show what's happening because generally and culturally you're supposed to be suppressing expression over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and how those two things might work in balance. I love that. 
All right, that's our next study that we'll propose somewhere <laughs> out there. We'll get we'll get a, a, an umpteenth funding source for you. Can I just say one more yeah. thing? Uh, Stanislavski has this really famous exercise called public solitude that anyone does in in an introductory acting class, where you are recreating really basic naturalistic level. Um, uh, human activity, right, in character, perhaps not in character. And I'm realizing, I think, I think a lot of this um, acting training begins actually with naturalism, begins with this idea of executing activity on stage. It's someone who's preparing a meal. It's someone who's dressing, uh, again, either in character or just as themselves. And then you almost scale it up, right, depending on the style of the play or the playwright's desire, or perhaps the director's desire, you start at naturalism. You start at, in a way, at a non-performative, non-theatrical level, and then you add this theatrical sense of self in some do ways. You think, do you think that's about teaching people to be more aware of the audience or less aware of the audience? Do you think that sort of trying to do something that you do in everyday life in front of an audience the natural reaction of a beginning actor is to be hyper aware of the yep. audience and therefore hyper aware of self. And, and so it's about getting rid of that hyper awareness yes. or do you think it's about gaining the presentation? I think the first thing that a beginning actor has to do is concentrate on activities on stage as if there's a fourth wall there and, uh, diminish the self-consciousness of the fact that they're doing it for an audience. That is step one. Because that adds concentration and focus and uh, honing in or f focusing in on, on the five senses. And then once you've practiced that, an actor on stage has a dual responsibility of sharing their story with the actors on stage and with the audience. But I love that question. I would say first step is concentration. And then once you've once you're telling a clear story on stage to the director's eyes, I think you can begin to figure out how to share it with that audience who's sharing the space with you spatially. But that's step two to me. Because that's almost taking away of, of, of a mediated presence, of an awareness yeah. of your own presence, right? That first you have to take it away and then you can put it back again. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's, which I, I think may be opposite of what, uh, people who have never acted might think about actors as doing. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. I think there is this this especially training heavy step of taking it away and practicing taking it away, which leads really nicely into our sort of second aspect um, of presence. And you know, again, as Anne and I go and plan these episodes, we're we're trying to find these pairs of acting principles and psychology terms. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when she says I wanted I wanted to do an episode on presence, I immediately was like, yes, of course. Like that is very rich psychologically. But then she, you know, what is that that psychological thing? And my best guess is mindfulness. You know, I, I think there I tend to think of the sort of mindful acceptance piece of mindfulness as being like the most central part of it. Um, but I do think that even within that, so this, this is again, the, the, the second, like more subjective, like what is the psychological state of, of the actor? Um, I do think that even within that second step, there are multiple steps to it. And the first one I think is appealing away is a getting rid of distraction is sort of leaving things, um, at the door. And it's interesting too, because there are a host of different, 
psychology studies, mostly social psych studies, right, that show just baseline people act differently when there are people, other people around versus not, right? Like this, these are studies of emotional expression. These are studies of um, other, e- even some cognitive tasks, right? That there are these, um, that there, there's an effect of having other people around and all of those effects are usually referred to as audience effects, <laughs> right? Like that's the word for like, you do something differently when there's other people around. Um, and, and so I just think- humans. Say that again. It's not just humans. Yeah. It's been shown in in other species as well. I think even in some bugs that when you have (laughs) others around, they, you know, go through mazes differently or seek out food differently, that audience effects are evolutionarily incredibly old. Yeah. And make different decisions, right? Like if they know they're going to, other people are watching them make decisions that people will be more or less generous, for example. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's pretty sort of widespread. So I do think that like part of this, this amorphous presence thing is learning how to peel away other stuff that takes us out of um, being present. And I think that's what a lot, I don't, I don't know a ton. Maybe you can speak a little bit more about formal sort of, um, mindfulness training, but my sense is that a lot of that is learning how to let go a bunch of the other clutter that's constantly going through our heads. That's taking us out of where we are. And I, and presence is also a very intentional term as it relates to time, right? Mm -hmm. So being present means that you're not currently, um, too much thinking about the past or the future, right? right? That you're thinking about the, the present moment. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's some of my sense of what a lot of acting training is, yeah. is probably, and what a lot of mindfulness training is. And I suspect that someone who's done a lot of one would go into other, the other going, Oh yeah, I've got this piece. Yeah. And I'm fascinated. Uh, Talia to our listeners, Talia has a, a blog on psychology, on psychology today's website called the mind on stage. And, uh, there's a bunch of wonderful posts and there's one called mindfulness and acting. That's the title, right? Talia. Um, I believe so. Yes. And I'm fascinated with sort of the interplay as Kateria is talking about this and sort of how similar they are. Um, just, just piggybacking on, on Kateri, when I hear this other half of presence, you have the stage presence, which is what the actor is, is in control of, right? It's an, it's an energy of doing to me, this other half of presence, the way I'm interpreting it is the idea of, uh, relinquishing control and surrendering to what the environment is giving you and to what your co-actors are giving you. So it's the idea of actually listening and taking in information. Um, a wonderfully, horribly funny, bad example of this is Steve Carell as Michael Scott on The Office when he's in improv class. And of course, Steve Carell's an excellent improver, but Michael Scott isn't. And he's telling everyone what to do and he's shutting everyone down. He's saying, no, this, no, this. And he's miming, he's pulling out a gun and he's just sort of in a really horrible, oppressive way, sort of shutting everything down. So to me, presence also means um, having the wherewithal and the compassion and the vulnerability to realize that you aren't the only person on stage. You aren't mm-hmm. the only person uh, with information to give to the audience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that fits in so nicely with sort of basic tenets of, of mindful awareness. So, uh, you know, step one in many secular mindfulness awareness practices is, you know, non-judgmental present moment awareness. So you just pay attention to everything that's happening without trying to 
trying to regulate it in any way. Um, you don't say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling so sad or why is my leg twitching like that? You just notice, oh, my leg is twitching or I'm feeling some feelings of sadness or I'm thinking things about the future. Um, and you, you notice what's happening. You don't pre-plan, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is exactly what you're talking about. You, you don't, you don't say, okay, I'm just going to think about how happy I was sitting in the park this weekend. You just sort of notice, oh, I thought about the park. Okay, now mm. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling some tingling in my throat. Okay, now I'm going to feel the breath coming in and out of my nose. So in in basic mindfulness awareness practices, you start with a focal point, something like, um, I'm going to keep bringing my attention back to my breathing. But if you get distracted, which everybody does all the time, um, you, you pay attention to what you've been distracted by, and then you bring your attention back to your breathing. So I think that with acting, Mm. it's obviously, you know, 10 layers more complicated than that, because you also have to have your lines and your emotional reactions, and you need to make Make sure you're not facing away from the audience and when am I supposed to cross the stage but also you this idea of not pre-planning your emotional responses mm-hmm. but paying close attention yeah. to your scene partner and reacting in a way that is authentic to what your scene partner has given you is directly tied into the way that um, practitioners of secular mindfulness think about it yes yeah, and I think the acceptance piece, it, the the non judgmental piece of it, to me, like is what is is uh, both tricky, but also like sort of really core to it. And I think one of the reasons it can be really hard to define and explain is there's tons of examples of what's not present or what's not mindful, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like you can give lots of examples of like an inner critic coming out and like dominating your thoughts or. Um, I think we've all performed with people who are, while they're performing, evaluating their own performance. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, while, while I was doing that high school musical theater awards uh, uh, um, adjudication, one of my favorite stories was um, a teenage, um, a high school or a teenage girl who um, had an unfortunate incident with the sound design where she went off stage and they didn't turn off her mic. Mm-hmm. And she had just sung Far From the Home I Love as Hoddle and Fiddler on the Roof. And then you hear her dropping her character voice, of course, going into sort of modern day intonation and talking to her friends. And you hear her clear as a bell in the whole auditorium going, oh my God, it was so good. I almost cried. I didn't cry, but I almost cried. It was so good. (laughs) I mean, and there are times where that's appropriate, right? I mean, I'm thinking of like in anything goes the giant tap number uh, in in the title song, right? I mean, there's a way in which Reno Sweeney and the actor playing Reno Sweeney should be kind of proud of herself for what she's pulling off right then. Um, and it's, and it's congruent with the character. Um, so there is a sort of wink to the audience, but winks to the audience have to be on purpose. And if they're not on purpose, it totally takes you out of what's happening on stage. Right. right. And to be fair, I mean, she was off stage, so she has permission to do whatever she wanted, but you know, if projecting myself at that, you know, if I were that age and at that stage in my career, I would have been thinking those things while I was singing the song, right? Like it wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm in the moment and then I go off stage and 
that I'm about, like it would have been ongoing for me that I was judging my performance sure. as I was giving it. And I think even professional actors to some extent do that, but they have practiced kind of pushing it away. Yeah. Like it's a distraction that enters inevitably to some extent. And then you find a way to put your focus again on some more productive acting yeah. tool or question. Um, but those things are always right. Or the audience there's, uh, you know, candy wrappers are crinkling mm -hmm. or, uh, I had an example of a show with my friend, Diana Dresser, where everything was going wrong. We were on stage. Um, one of us was, I think it was Di was coughing uncontrollably. There was an ox, really loud oxygen tank in the audience. There mm -hmm. was, there was, you know, candy wrappers. What's the word? What's the verb? Crinkling. You know, crinkling there. I think I got my skirt stuck in the set and you, you deal, right? These are all these sort of distractions that you then find a way to negotiate and, and move on. Yeah. They don't, they don't stop the show. They can't. It's interesting because one of the few studies that's actually been done on professional actors as they were acting um, was done by Ellie Konijan uh, in the Netherlands who wrote a book about the actor's emotions. And she spends a lot of the book talking about task emotions or task thoughts that actors go through while they're acting, which is this sort of flipping between you know, what is my character doing in this moment? What, you know, how is my character reacting to this other character? But then also, oh, am I in my spotlight? Or right. man, my right leg is really itchy tonight. Or, oh no, yeah. my skirt got stuck in the set. Yeah. So there is a sense in which actors have to flip what they're paying attention to and where they're putting, you know, that they continue to engage their stage presence while their sort of personal presence, their personal attention moves around a little bit to yes. make sure that not only are they still portraying the character in an authentic or, you know, task congruent manner, uh, but that also they're not going to trip over that wire that's right, right. state, you know, mm -hmm. down right um, and make sure that like they don't fall off into the orchestra pit, which I've seen happen to somebody who sure. wasn't paying attention, right? right? And I feel like you wrote about this in the mindfulness and acting blog, which I, I deeply appreciated because I've been thinking a lot about, well, it's, you know, acting is more than just mindfulness. What I appreciate about your, your blog post on mindfulness and acting is, is thinking about what the overlap is. Is it the same thing? And I just, I just support this idea that an actor is to some extent, especially in character, uh, working mindfully uh, in terms of dealing with the present moment. But I feel like an actor is actually doing, is doing both the forest, is seeing the forest and the trees. So if being mindful is sort of seeing the trees, seeing the moment, moments through time, mm -hmm. that the, an actor is also, an experienced actor also is seeing the forest, is seeing the big pictures, understanding that this present moment fits into a bigger picture. Um, and there's, for example, there's an acting tool, uh, Uta Hagen talks about it, she calls it three entrances. I like this idea of past, present, future, where at any given moment, you have just come from a past experience, you're in the present one, and you're heading towards a future. Um, hmm. And in Practical Handbook for the Actor, they talk about preliminary action, this is also called a pre-beat, where anytime you're entering into a scene, you it's sort of two separate things. Something has just happened to you, but but more exciting, you're entering into that space with an assumption of what you're going to see or experience mm. when you get there. And it's exciting when what actually happens is different. So this is an example of... Um, I don't want to say it's not mindfulness, but it's working with multiple time 
temporal, you know, pieces of time at the same time. Well, and Mm -hmm. that's the interesting thing about the fact that this word is presence is that presence is defined by not being past or future. And in some ways, when I've tried to define mindfulness for people, like I was just saying, you have to talk about what it, it isn't. And so years ago I was tasked with, um, coming up with just, a, a, an instruction for a study. So it was an emotion regulation study where we were, as we often do, having people look at, um, negative images and, um, asking them at times to use cognitive reappraisal to rethink, um, the situation, but we also train them to use acceptance. And this is acceptance as it often gets packaged for acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, which is very, very much an, uh, a non-judgmental uh, awareness and non-judgmental mindfulness sort of instruction. Um, but it's so hard to tell people what to do to achieve that, right? Mm-hmm. You say, don't judge, you know, don't, uh, don't worry about changing things. Don't, you know, uh, don't have these like secondary emotional responses where you feel guilty for feeling sad or whatever. And so in order, which is really bad, um, it's really bad practice for experimental instruction to say, don't do these three things because then you really still don't know what the person is doing. And so the instruction from ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, is to allow your emotions to rise and fall like a wave Mm -hmm. and to ride it and to trust that the peak will result in a fall, right? Like so yes. that it's you, you, it presents, it prevents this secondary anxiety of, oh my gosh, you know, I'm such a bad person because I'm feeling angry or, oh, I'm going to die because my heart is pounding and like all of that, that it's okay. Your emotions will rise and then they will fall again. And if you really think about it, riding something like a wave is still a really passive thing to do, mm. but it gives people an image and it gives people something to sort of to do. And, and there are certainly lots of things that are not riding the wave, right? Trying to steer the wave is not riding it. Um, trying to prevent the wave is not riding it. So it helps people to not do all of those other things and gives them at least a little bit of a proactive thing to kind of be engaged in. And the, I, I'm not, I don't know if you're, if you've ever heard of this, but the acronym that I've heard in mindfulness training, um, is RAIN. R-A-I-N. So that is recognize what emotion that you're having, right? Figure out a way to name it. Uh, And that goes into some of the work uh, by Lisa Feldman Barrett and colleagues uh, on emotional granularity, this idea that the more words you have for your inner states, for your emotions, uh, the better are you able, the, the better you are able to um, control them, understand them, work with them, manipulate them, right? So so it's this idea of the first step is, is just recognizing that you're feeling something. Mm. The second, the A in RAIN is accept that this is what you're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't feel sad, I shouldn't feel angry, this sort of secondary anxiety, Kateri, that you were just talking about, just accept, okay, I'm sad right now, or I'm angry right now, or I'm happy right now. Um, the third step, I think, is the is the mindfulness awareness and the presence piece of it, which is investigate. So you, mm. s- you sort of say, well, how am I feeling this in my body? What is happening to me that I'm experiencing this emotion, right? So I'm feeling sad. I accept that I'm feeling sad. And this sadness seems to be centered in a feeling of tightness in my throat and heaviness on my shoulders. And and I feel crunched in, in my chest. Mm. And then the last piece of it is this sort of acceptance and commitment therapy piece of it, which is it's kind of awkward, but it's called not identify, which is (laughs) to say, I am not my emotion. 
I am not what I'm experiencing right now, that it is a wave, right? It is, it is something that will rise and fall. It is something that will come and go that, you know, at some point in, in the relatively near future, I will no longer feel this sad. I will feel something else. So the idea, and this is through the mindfulness awareness practices center at UCLA, um, where I heard this acronym, uh, is, is through this sort of recognize, accept, physically investigate and then not identify, you're, you're able to, to be present and aware and uh, engaged with your emotional state, but not let it be so overwhelming that you might behave in a way that you don't want to. Um, and that sort of lets it ease off naturally, rather than trying to force yourself into a new emotional state. I love that. That makes me think of, of two things. Uh, a, a good actor knows that there are multiple ways to play a scene. There are a few wrong ways, but there are, if you do the analysis correctly, right? If you know what you want, if you know what your obstacles, if you understand the constraints of the play world, then the emotional life of the character, you can accept that there are multiple correct ways for that character to respond emotionally to the circumstances. There's not one right way. Like an, uh, the wrong, the trap of an actor is my character would never feel that way, would never do that, right? It's only this one way. It must I must always feel sad or express anger in this scene when actually it might be appropriate it, one night to feel happy, right? Or to feel liberated. Um, so... I did that. I just thought of that when you were talking about rain. Um, and then the second thing that is, I, I'm going to try and phrase it as a question for you, Talia, is I was reading your drama games post and, uh, you said that, uh, students or children who engage in drama games, uh, versus sort of other types of games, uh, because the drama games are asking the kids to embody character, emotion, mental states, it leads to the kids having better control over overwhelming emotions. I thought that was perhaps useful in the sense of, uh, in the act of transforming yourself into another character, you begin to accept that emotion is what? It's not static. It's not permanent. It's, it's like the act of transforming yourself into character is liberating in some mm -hmm. way. But I guess I want to understand more why it is. I mean, I, I think about, I mean, for this study specifically, these were um, low socioeconomic status four-year-olds who had um, sort of lower than average levels of emotional control coming into the study in the first place. But I think that what drama games and transforming yourself into sort of multiple characters over time or a single character across a good number of emotional experiences, but in a condensed time frame, right? You have, uh, you know, months or years or at least several weeks happening over the course of an hour and a half or two and a half hours, depending on the play. So I think that one of the things that engaging with multiple characters with multiple emotional states can do is to show or to teach an actor or a child that there is such a thing as a stopping and starting point of yeah. an emotion um, and that there is such a thing as levels of an emotion. Yeah. I think that that particularly through development and in early childhood development, you know, children are very intense in their affect, right? Um, right. You know, a, a broken granola bar is caused to throw yourself on the floor and have at least a solid 15 minute screaming tantrum. So, you know, kids, kids are, are bad at this. They can't, they, they don't have 
what we as adults see as appropriate levels of emotional responding to the size of the events in their world. Now, Mm -hmm. to be fair, when your world is all granola bars and tights and, you know, do I get to play with the red ball or the blue ball, when those are the only decisions you're given over the course of an entire day, it may be that, yeah, those are appropriate emotional responses because this was the only thing I had freedom of choice over in my entire day. But one of the tasks of the development of emotion regulation is to understand that not all emotions have to be taken up to 11, that you can have moderate levels of sadness, that you can take a moment to experience and then kind of get over an emotional event. And then also, I think very importantly, that emotions can have different types of expression, that my anger does not look like your anger, does not look like the person across the street's anger. And I think that what drama games do for children, particularly when they're played in a group, um, and some of the drama games that we did in this experiment were drama games in which um, I, you know, I held the ball of happiness and then I passed it to the little boy next to me and he held the ball of happiness and then he passed it to the little girl next to her who held the ball of happiness. And then we reflected on the fact that my happy looked different than his happy looked different than her happy and not all happiness is the same, but you can still use the same word. And that so it's actually- this idea. The same is true of verbs. So when an actor is actioning a text, so so an objective has a verb to it, but uh, the more we've been talking to uh, actors and casting agents, local casting agent Sylvia Gregory, everyone loves this book, Actions, the Actors, the Source, and it's all these transitive verbs that actors are playing on given lines, that if I'm going to place to slash or to pinch or to poke, my slash or my pinch or my poke might be different from yours or Kateri's, and also, I need to dive deep into what that actually means. If I'm playing to poke, right, or to slash, I have to actually sort of mine the experience of that verb. So all of these things are subjective, and, and that's, that's okay. Yeah. Since you brought up kids, Talia, and you are a developmental psychologist, um, I also like wanted to talk about this intuition that a lot of people have. And um, both Anne and I talked a bunch. Um, there's this 10-minute YouTube clip from an acting teacher named Patsy Rodenberg, um, actor and acting teacher, um, called The Second Circle. And it's her – have you ever seen it, Talia? No, I don't think I have. It's it's just it's really it's a really quick clip. I don't know if it's from a lecture she was doing or a class that, that she routinely taught, but she basically defines presence as the second of um, of three sort of interlocking circles. Um, and a, as a brief primer, um, the first circle is internally focused awareness. So she doesn't call it awareness; she calls it energy, but energy that returns to the to the person. The third circle is presentational awareness, energy that only goes outside. And then the second circle is the perfect balance between them. Um, and this has been, I'm getting goosebumps even as I'm talking about it. It's a really important concept. And actually it's, um, it's something that actually made its way into like me and David's wedding vows because it's such an important piece. She says in the video that, um, Second circle is where intimacy comes from. It's such an important part of transacting, you know, with people um, that that in our vows, we're like, I promise to be in the second circle with you as much as possible. Um, And one of the things she says is that um, we're born into the second circle, that Mm -hmm. kids are in the second circle. Um, And there's, I, I'm, I, 
a week and a half ago, I saw a local production of Ragtime and was like super sparked by the lyric um, in the the song "Our Children," um, where I think it's the whole phrase is um, "see them laugh unembarrassed and alone, mm. hearing music of their own," which is so true, right? That there isn't this preoccupation with what other people think and that peeling away that we have that you have to do of all the other things that distract you is kind of unnecessary because children tend to be pretty preoccupied with the present moment. So I didn't know like what your perspective was on that kind of lay wisdom of, of children in presence. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there, there's certainly, I forget who the quote is from and maybe we can look it up a little bit later and, and come back and insert who the quote is from. But, um, I've seen a quote that says something to the effect of there is nothing more present than a two-year-old child, or there's nothing more mindful than a two-year-old child. That's mm. what it is. Um, so it might be a quote from John Kabat-Zinn or, or maybe from the Dalai Lama, right? Nothing, n- nobody is more mindful than a, than a two-year-old child because they don't really have the ability to engage in conceptions of the future. And they don't really understand or remember time in the past, right? right? So trying to, even even a child a little bit older, trying to convince a five-year-old that um, two weeks away when you have that birthday party really is 14 days away and it's not tomorrow and it's not the day after tomorrow and we can't go this afternoon, right? So this concept of how far time extends into the future and how far time extends into the past really is a developing slowly developing concept um, that takes some time. And and kids really do live, very young kids really do live only in the present moment. What's so interesting, of course, is that um, that children are terrible actors for the most part. <laughs> right, right. Right. And because they and haven't I added have, it back in again, that second step that we were talking about. Well, I think what's really interesting about it is that kids are super interesting to just watch on their own. Right. So it's really fun. So, for example, my son has just started Little League Baseball. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever been to Little League Baseball, but they can't hit and they can't throw and Mm. they can't catch. But it is the most astonishingly hilarious thing to watch ever because half the kids are playing with the dirt in the outfield. That was me. Um, Children are so excited when they hit the ball that they sort of just stand there and forget that there's something for them to do next. Um, And my child, unsurprisingly, because he is my child, likes to stand in the outfield. And when I look at him, I can see that he's telling himself a story. Yeah. And he's sort of holding his fingers up in the air and then every now and then he twirls around and then he like makes a little ant hole in the dirt and sticks his finger in and then he kick, and then the ball comes towards him and he goes sprinting off after it and then he comes back to his position and starts the story up again. So I think part of it is that kids are absolutely fascinating to watch on their own because they're just so in what they're doing, right? They give their whole selves and their whole minds over to what whatever it is that they're doing at the moment, right? They're not sort of planning out what they're going to play with tomorrow while also playing with things today. They're fully invested in the thing that they're doing. Um, but right. it also means- But something's you, missing, right? What's the thing that's missing? What's missing is that you can't just put a child on stage and say, go. Right. A child has to exist in the world of the play. A child has to exist in the world of the character. It's the entering into the fictional world, not on their own terms, but on the terms of everybody else around them right. that I think makes kids 
not able to, you don't really get too many child prodigy actors. And when you do, they're usually not theater actors, they're film where you can get them to do it for 30 seconds. Right. That's actually very helpful because I was thinking really the goal of an actor, I just want to make sure I get this in here, is to both have the presence of a child, the playfulness of a child and the maturity to have the stage presence, right? Which is the job of, of telling this story to to an audience, a character can have one or the other. Like you could have a very childlike character who's very sort of present, but not in tune with the needs of the other people. Um, Savage and Limbo, the, many of the characters in John Patrick Shanley's Savage and Limbo have these extremely, in some ways, childlike, self-indulgent moments on stage, which is correct for the character, mm-hmm. um, but not wouldn't be for the actor. Kateri and I wanted to bring up this idea of flow, Um, Mm -hmm. which I am not an expert on, but it seems to align a lot with what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, flow, I think actually flow may be um, a really nice metaphor for this idea of task-specific presence, right? So what what a good actor can do is get into this mindful state of a child, get into this fully focused state that you watch children get into, but they can do it on purpose and they can do it exactly to the task that they need to get into. Right. right? So I'm asking you, so I have, I have a, a fun example when you were talking about the pre-beat um, yeah. and what you do to prepare to get on stage. When I was in college, I played Perdita in the winter's tale. Uh-huh. And Perdita's first entrance is holding hands with Florizel, at least it was in the production I did, holding hands with Florizel, running at full speed and laughing, just laughing as hard as she can, right? Fully in love, totally overexcited. And the actor who played Florizel and I used to be in a certain area of backstage and we would hype each other up and like get into each other's arms and giggle for a solid five minutes before Mm. it was time to run on stage because we couldn't build the level of presence in the moment of entering on stage with that much energy without a lengthy Kateri mentioned that, that presence in some ways, to be present in the moment requires, I remember when we were talking about this, uh, one of our many conversations requires preparation. Like to, mm-hmm. to become present, you actually need to warm up into the presence. It doesn't happen immediately, except maybe for children. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but it sounds very wise. Yeah. It sounds very wise. And I think that the, I think the concept of flow, the way that a lot of people talk about it. So a lot of people talk about flow in the context of like sports or hobbies or being engaged in something that's perfectly, um, capturing your attention, but isn't so, you know, um, isn't so overwhelming that you're frustrated by it. And I think that a lot of times that gets used in acting training or in rehearsal when people aren't being super present where the director or the acting teacher will give you a secondary task on stage, right? You basically create these dual task conditions to shut down the like distracting other thoughts and to pull you into the scene. At least in my experience, when an actor isn't fully engaged in a scene or isn't fully present, one of the sort of quick hacks that I've seen acting teachers and directors use is to give them a secondary task, right? To um, to yes. count, you know, the money, like not pretend to count, but actually count. I once was n- totally in very third circle, very presentational in a scene in acting class. Um, and my acting teacher was like, 
look at your partner's face. And I was like, okay. And she's like, no, I mean, I want you to do the scene next. And I want you to recreate every expression he's making on his face. Mm. And I was like, what? And she was like, I'm going to have you do this next. Mm -hmm. So it's your job to memorize Mm -hmm. what is happening on his face. And I was like, like instantly. And I think it was a scene in which someone is also trying to, my character was also trying to figure out whether her partner had cheated on her. It was from, I think it was real things. It was Tom Stoppard. Um, so it, it had a dual, it, it brought me into the scene more, it brought me out of third circle, but it also focused my character's energy on the right thing, which is what the heck is he showing me, right? Like, is he leaking any information that I need to figure out my central task, which is to determine whether or not he was cheating on me. So, um, and you, and you know, you've talked about being given a secondary task too, yep. right? And yeah, that, how that or sometimes- conditioning for, so a secondary task, I call it an activity. Yeah. So you're making a baby- Sorry, crimes. secondary task is more of lab, lab speak. Sure. That's true. But that makes sense to me. Uh, Activity or task on stage rather than an action or an objective. A babe in Crimes of the Heart has to make a whole pitcher of lemonade. So you need water, you need ice, you need need to squeeze lemons, you need to pour a whole bunch of sugar, you need to shake it up. And she's speaking a monologue. And that was one of my favorite moments on stage because I was in, it allowed me to be in flow. I think also the number... I, I guess this is just to sort of add to what Katira's already said. Part of presence has to do with how many things you're focused on. Mm-hmm. So there can be, so there's a kind of sweet spot where an actor is involved in maybe one super engaging thing or question or curiosity or acting tool, or it could be maybe up to five. I don't know many how many times we can do more than one thing at once. But on either end of that, you might not be engaged enough. There might not be the director or you together have not figured out enough to do. And so you lack presence, mindfulness in that way. And the way I often live my life is I'm trying to tackle and do too many things all at once. And so to me, there's this beautiful sort of sweet spot in number of things or tasks that you're doing. And that ties into speed. Another thing I realized for me as a person is I tend to move too quickly, right? I'm tending to, I guess it's another way of saying do too many things at once. Whereas if I were to slow down, the character of Anne would actually be living a much more present, mindful, Mm -hmm. uh, moment-to-moment existence. Right. And of course, you don't want to slow down so far that you sort of back your way into what neuroscientists call the default network or or slow down so far, far that you end up engaging in sort of mind wandering because that's, right. you know, we all pull out our phones in order to put our minds into a different place. But right. when you don't have a phone to pull out to distract yourself, we often will mind wander into the past or the future yeah. or what you wish was happening right now. I think um, it and usually think, pulls you, know, you into first circle. I bet, I bet default mode is there is for, sorry, first circle. And I, and I think with flow too, the question really is, um, is the task hard enough in order to capture your full attention, but also interesting enough that you're not giving up. And Mm. that's really, you know, video game makers are the kings of this, where Mm. they can sort of make a video game that's exactly hard enough so that it captures every, every part of your attention. You're not able to do anything else while playing the video game. Um, and then also you get enough rewards and sort of enough bright, shiny colors that it, it remains interesting. Mm. And I think with, with acting, that may be part of what secondary tasks are for is to, is to increase the difficulty of what you're doing. Um, but then also there's nothing worse than a bored actor, right? An actor who doesn't, who doesn't find the task at hand inherently interesting. Um, and, and, 
you know, can't sort of bring themselves to be fully invested. And that's right. just terrible to watch. Well, and video, the best video games are also adaptive, right? Like they, they, once you master them, they move on. And I think that, that, um, actors who are performing in shows with really long runs have to adapt their secondary task as well, right? You hear stories about, you know, Broadway casts having like a word they have to work into the show at some point, you know, mm-hmm. to keep things fresh and to keep everybody sort of in it because just all of the stuff they've laid out in rehearsals and in the script is just not enough anymore. You, you know, it's a really interesting sort of task demand and achievement level balance, which I think has been the theme of a lot of what you guys have mentioned today, which yeah. is that presence is a balance. It's yeah, set, and I, I think middle. something something I'm learning talking to you today and talking to uh, other people we've interviewed and just thinking about this is an immature actor, an inexperienced actor might do all the prep work correctly, right? But they might not realize how much the truth of the moment, that's a chapter heading in Practical Handbook for the actor, but the the what they're negotiating with the actual human beings, with the audience, that particular night, that Tuesday night or Wednesday night, how their body is feeling in that moment, how the mic is working or not working, how warmed up they are, these truths, these, these tangible things uh, uh, that are special and unique to that particular performance, how much we want to pay attention to those and use the ones that help us tell the story because they are real. They are not imagined. Um, and I, I feel like that the value of the present moment and negotiating the attributes of the present moment, um, can improve your acting until, I mean, there's examples where it can't, like you feel nauseated and you just have to kind of cover that up. But there, there are many examples where I think we sometimes think we're supposed to ignore all those things, Mm -hmm. but they actually make a more specific performance. Totally. I know you have to go in just a second, Talia, but we wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit more. Your expertise, as Anne has hinted at, really is very broad. Um, You know, I think of you, even within psychology, as having multiple domains of expertise, and then you add in theater (laughs) and development and all of these sorts of things, and it's just, you know a lot about a lot of things. So um, aside from what we've already chatted about, like, what sorts of things are on your mind as it relates to psychology and theater intersecting? What sort of studies do you have coming out soon or that you're currently doing that you want to share with whoever might be listening? What are you passionate about? <laughs> so first, let me just say that like we could have talked for another four hours about yes. this because I feel like the more we talk about it, the more questions I have and the more sort of elements I want to figure out because it's one of, I think acting, you know, I always say whenever somebody asks me, well, why do you study the psychology of theater? Like why, why are those two things paired? My response is always, well, they are the same thing. They're just (laughs) different ways of, of, you know, of asking the same question, which is why do humans do what they do? Um, so I really, I'm so excited to hear all the other episodes and see what you guys come up with, because I think this is just, um, such a great sort of rich area of exploration. Um, but so I'm, I'm sort of approaching these, the question of, uh, theater and what theater does and what acting does, um, from what I'm thinking of as two sides of, of a continuum right now. So one of the big studies I'm doing right now is a anal as an analysis of what the best acting teachers for adolescents are actually doing in their classrooms. Mm. I think in arts education, particularly in sort of the what do the arts do for children's cognitive, social, and emotional development, we all get really focused on 
put child in art class, get academic outcome, right? Almost Mm -hmm. as if it's a black box, as if just putting the child into the class is enough to have some sort of gain in an outcome of interest. And um, for me, I really want to know mechanism. I really want to know why. I really want to know how. I really want to know if there's something specific about the exercises that the children are doing or the ways in which the teachers are talking to them or the ways in which ensemble is built. I mean, I'm sort of agnostic right now as to what happens in acting classes that may be causing outcomes, but I I would like to know what it is. So we're filming Mm -hmm. 150 hours of theater classes um, in high schools for the arts. Oh my gosh, I wish you could see Anne's face right now. She's so (laughs) impressed with this. We're doing it. I I had a hint. I knew this was was one of the things you were doing, but Anne is like, holy Can you come to Denver School of the Arts? That would be amazing. I would love that. So, so we're filming, you know, Boston, uh, DC, uh, LA, and, and what we're going to do is look across the classes, across the classrooms, what are the psychological concepts that acting teachers are teaching? Because they're not doing it on purpose, right? They're doing it because it's useful to be an actor. But from a psychologist's point of view and from a developmental psychologist's point of view, where can we point and say, look, this is the type of instructional uh, moment that may teach empathy. This is the type of con- instructional moment that may teach self-concept and self uh, and self-esteem. Um, and and therefore, you know, with the goal of both being able to say this is what children may be learning through theater classrooms. Let's go in and test it. But also in the development of intervention for these sort of social mm-hmm. and emotional mm-hmm. skills. How can we? take the wisdom of the millennia of acting, right? I mean, acting has been around and teaching acting has been around for hundreds, thousands of years, but we don't know from a psychological viewpoint what it is that acting teachers are doing. To me, uh, it, it also teaches presence in the classroom. So we're, you know, we're all addicted to technology and our phones. And to me, if you put those phones away and you are doing scene work and having conversations with the other actors in the room, that creates, I don't know if it creates empathy, but a level of presence that, that phones can never give. And then the second, really briefly, is theater training is brilliant for anyone who has to give a pitch. You're, t- mm-hmm. you're a business person trying to sell a product, then if you get some theater training, people, you'll have more stage presence, right? You're a Absolutely. lawyer trying to appeal to uh, a jury, uh, get some theater training, and and they will understand why you're on the right side of the law. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many examples of its power. The other end of the continuum um, that I'm really excited about right now is we're having kids and adolescents come into the lab, and we are randomly assigning them. We're we're, we're sort of forcing the kids, you know, in a, in a very nice psychologically friendly way. With informed um, consent. Exactly. With informed <laughs> consent from the parents and from the children and review from the IRB. Um, we are having them play with various levels of embodiment. So one of the things that I think is mechanistically changing the way that actors experience emotions is how many different times and ways they get to play and experience emotions in their body. And so what we're having kids do is either be very passive and watch somebody else play, be sort of quasi-active, right, and play with a puppet or a doll. So it's sort of kind of in your body, but not really. Mm. Or be fully active and dress up in costumes. So I've got 
undergraduate researchers dressing up as bears and putting kids in bear costumes and sort of pretending to be bears in my lab, which is the cutest thing you've ever seen. Mm. (laughs) And then we're looking at how do these different levels of embodiment change how children understand the difference between fiction and reality. How much do they remember from the scenario? How much do they understand the characters that they're learning about or that they're playing? How do they think about their own sort of emotional responses to things? The idea being that if differing levels of embodiment change the way you think about um, emotion, change the way you think about a person, um, we should see that through randomly assigning kids to these three levels of embodiment. Mm, so those are sort of my two, my two current, um, my two current loves, but ask me in three weeks, I'll have something else. All right. I love it. You're so awesome. We clearly could have you on every single episode. You know, I feel like you are the intersection between me and Anne. And that's the the, the sort of feature of the podcast is like, look at the intersection between these two things, which is your world all the time. So we'll have you back, I'm sure, um, once we start looking towards season two. Um, You're the best. I miss you. I miss you too. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to like hear episodes and I'm so excited to um, yeah, hear more about the, the intersections because it is, it's, it's, it's where I live and I love it so much. Thanks Sweet. Talia. Thank you guys. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye. And keep listening. We're going to chat with Jessica Austin and Lauren Ballman. We're excited. Hope you are too. We are so delighted to have two wonderful women and friends here uh, to have a little chat more about presence. So our two guests, um, I'll start with Lauren Ballman, who is a Denver actress, improviser, and social media director for Benchmark Theater. Uh, Lauren and Jessica have been performing as the duo Boss since 2015 uh, with a form they made up called Improvised Book Club. And Boss has actually been featured at the Denver Improv Festival, the Omaha Improv Festival, and the Detroit Improv Improv Festival. Their podcast, Required Readcast, was launched in December 2017. You'll hear more about that. And when Lauren isn't doing theater-related things, she works as a full-time nanny. And we also have Miss Jessica Austin. Jessica is currently a member of the Black Box Repertory Company at the Arvada Center, and her newest play, Sin Street Social Club, a commissioned adaptation of Afrobend's The Rover, will premiere as part of their 2018-2019 season. Yay! Jessica is part of the cast of Comedy Sports Denver, and she teaches improvisation at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Denver School of the Arts, and sometimes at DU. In 2017, she was featured as one of 100 Colorado creatives you need to know by the Denver Westward. Um, So, hey, so I want to just start by saying why we want to have you on. First of all, you have your own podcast, which is super cool, and we're going to ask questions about it. It's called Required Readcast. And second, as we were figuring out what we want to talk about, we decided to do an episode on presence, which means a few things. Um, I thought, oh, I I really admire improv actors, because I tend to do scripted acting. And I saw Jess sometime last year with ScriptProv, and you were creating story off the top of your head and making stuff up and it made sense. And I know the basics of improv. I know a few games. I understand the principles behind it, but I have no idea how to tell a cohesive, coherent story without a script in front of me. So that was, and it just makes me think that you must have to be so present, so in the moment, so prepared to create that in the next moment. So that was why we wanted you on. 
And I actually, we didn't really discuss it, but Anne came to me and said, I really think we need to have Lauren and Jess on for improv related things. I was like, well, of course, because one of the things, you know, we were talking a lot about presence psychologically having a lot to do with mindfulness and a lot of like being in the moment and not worrying about the past or the future. And I actually sometimes tell people, people who sort of recoil at the idea of mindfulness, if I suggest that as something to improve their psychological well-being, there's some people who are like, ooh, well, I'm not into meditation, or they just like, they're just sort of like, no thanks. And I'm like, go do improv, like go do take an improv class, do improv dance, like anything where you don't have to come in with anything necessarily prepared. And your only job is to be responsive, like right then, uh, gets you in that moment. And it sort of, I think a lot of the things that we were talking about in terms of like kids just be in there, right? Like they don't bring a ton of baggage. They're not like worried about what they have to do in two hours, you know, and those sorts of things. Um, I think that that's just sort of packed into improv training and what good improvisers do well. So I totally agreed that this was super relevant to the, to the episode on presence. Cool. So let's get your voices in here. Can you both speak briefly about your training and experience, your backstory as improv actors? Absolutely. Um, this is Lauren. Hi. Uh, when I, um, was in college, I, auditioned and dabbled a little bit in short form, and I actually realized I didn't like it very much. I didn't take to it well. I wasn't, didn't feel good at it. It made me feel not great. So <laughs> I didn't do improv, and then I moved to New York um, after college to pursue theater, and while I was there, I went to a show at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, mm-hmm. and that completely changed my mind about improv. Um, UCB focuses on long form, which is very different from short form, whose line is it anyway, style games. Um, Long form, you are creating a full narrative. And seeing that as an actor, it really clicked in with me and made me go, okay, I can approach improv more like a play or how I would approach a scene and not just having to worry about joke, 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 because that's not necessarily my strength. So um, I... Then I started to take classes there, and I ended up going through their whole program, and it was really great and really informative, and that was many years ago now, but I still um, think a lot about that training that I took with them. It was it was great. Thanks. Jess? So I came to it similar, um, kind of down a similar path from uh, as Lauren. I went to CU Boulder, and they had an improv team that was really good, and I auditioned for it, and I did not get on it. And that was a bummer, and I was like, oh, I'm not funny. So I went away from improv and, you know, did straight theater. Like, I, and I think I fancied myself more of a dramatic actress than I am. <laughs> uh, I had great, great delusions when I graduated that I was going to play fucking Hamlet someday or something, and that's not a thing that has happened. Uh, because I'm not a great dramatic actress. I'm much better at comedy, and... I've found that through improv, I've been kind of able to expand that and start to feel a little more okay with my lack of grounded, dramatic presence <laughs> on stage. Um, I I hit a wall acting. So I ended up graduating, moving to Denver, and get, getting my equity card and working around town. And at some point, you burn out. And I got burnt out from being told no in auditions, being told no because I wasn't right for it, being told no because the director had somebody else in mind, being told no because... 
a myriad of reasons. And on the other side of the coin, some of the work I was getting was work I didn't love. You would like get a new play reading or Mm -hmm. book a show that you didn't love, but you did it for the money and the job and the health insurance weeks. And that started to get a little bit depressing. Mm -hmm. So I was frustrated and done with theater and just needed to not. But there was still that part of me that's like, you need to perform. So uh, I saw an audition for uh, a house team at the Bovine Metropolis. And I had taken a class with them earlier and I hadn't clicked with it. It was a group of people. I didn't really gel in the class. So I didn't continue with my training there. But I saw an audition and I was like, I could be on an improv team. So I went and uh, one of the people in the room was Chris Wolf, who you saw Anne performing as part of Cult Following. (sighs) Yes. Um, So Chris Wolf was the guy who was like, hey, put her on that team. Uh, So I kind of owe him my whole improv career. And we still perform together, he and I now. And so from there, I got on that team, and it was a long-form team um, called Maud, which performed a uh, a form called a Herald. And from there, I was just sort of in it. Then I ended up on the cast at Impulse Theater, which was like a deep dive into training um, that was supposed to produce short-form, but the training was more long-form training. It was really some advanced stuff that was way over my head and I had to sink or swim and I swam. And so that's where I am now. Now I'm here I go. And Jessica and I crossed paths because that house team she was on mod. Um, I went to when I had moved to Denver, my first audition that I went to for improv was um, at Bovine and I ended up getting put on that team. And that team ended up disintegrating after like a couple of months but the best thing that came out of it was that was how Jessica and I met and then she formed um, Improvised Jane Austen right at um, pretty soon after that which was our all-female Jane Austen improv team and um, the rest is history. Can so. one of you speak briefly to what how you define long-form improv and explain what a herald is? Well the herald is a specific form that was created by Del Close in Chicago Um, And that is primarily what Upright Citizens Brigade teaches. So when you go through their program, you're essentially each level is like a different layer of the Herald. Um, You don't actually perform a Herald until you're in like the third level of classes. Um, But it's a form that it's a series of three two-person scenes and then a group game. And then you revisit those two-person scenes and then you have another group game and Ultimately, what you're trying to do is, in a perfect Herald world, you bring all of those people and all of those elements together, and it becomes this really cool story. Um, and so that was the first form that I learned. But long form itself is, I think it's, like I said earlier, it's just expanding more on one idea and one suggestion, just taking that and running it for you know, however long, a 10 to 30-minute set, as opposed to... Um, like what Jessica does at comedy sports where you're doing short form. And she's much more the expert on that one. (laughs) Well, in short form, you take a suggestion, do a three to seven minute game, take a new suggestion, do a short game. So there is no dramatic payoff. But in long form, for the Mm -hmm. most part, it is narrative. For the most part, you're going to have some a story arc. Some are more montage-y, so it's just snippets here and there, and it doesn't lend itself to like long storytelling. But long form, you get one suggestion, like Lauren said, and then you just go for a while. Um, And something that I think is interesting about a Herald is the structure is really accessible to people if you think of the sitcom Seinfeld. Uh Um, They'll have like Jerry has a plot, Elaine has a plot, Kramer has a plot. Then you see them all chatting together at the diner. Then you revisit Jerry, revisit Kramer, revisit Elaine back at the diner. And then it's all mushed together by the end. Great. 
Yeah, it's funny when you actually start examining TV shows, how many of them follow like a herald structure. <laughs> it really starts to stand out when you know, when you recognize that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny, actually, I feel like so I'm a little bit obsessed with Will and Grace and actually like one of the Will and Grace episodes um, is about a spelling bee. And so the title of the episode is A Story, B Story. And B Story is about a spelling bee, which I find particularly <laughs> satisfying. That's an excellent it was, It's a gay spelling bee, which makes it even more. Oh, even better. Does Jack win the spelling bee? I think he does win the spelling bee, yeah. but Karen helps him cheat, I want to say. Um, <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who oh, have wow. not watched 15-year-old Will and Grace yet. <laughs> Um, so I was curious what you said, Jess, about um, sort of diving in and, and sinking or swimming and, and all of this training that you did. Can you say a little bit more about like what types of training, like what have you learned as improv actors mm-hmm. that help you do things like push a story forward or establish a character or improve like a brand new relationship on stage and establish that quickly and clearly? So I was shocked when I walked into my first rehearsal at Impulse Theater because it's a show that ran for about 26 years. It's known for short form, very gamey, very... In my opinion, my uneducated opinion at that point, it was like jokey, 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 blah, blah, blah. And that's me not having seen a show before I auditioned. <laughs> Dummy. Um, then you get in there and you're like, well, they're going to tell it, teach us how to play these funny games and do all the jokes. None of that happened in rehearsal. It was open scene work. And they're like, don't be funny. Don't do anything. Just get up and establish a character aware and a situation or yeah. the, the meat of the scene as quickly as possible. And once you have those things laid out, which you've seen any good playwright do at the top of a play. You see um, good long-form improvisers do. But in short form, once you have that down, then the elements of the game, whether it's a rewrite game where you have to keep rewriting off the top of your head or a gibberish game where you're not allowed to speak any known language, the constructs of the game are what makes the scene funny. You're not producing jokes. Those things put onto a very base reality make it funny. Yeah. so just diving deeper into that, what what it's what's happening in your brain or what language are you using? What sentences are coming out of your mouth to establish character, to establish setting or where, to establish the situation? Well, and it's probably a phrase you've heard um, one of the fundamentals of improv, they talk about yes and. What does that mean, right? Well, yes. to, to me, it's not a literal translation of yes, you are going to the store and could you buy me some bread? But it is, the two basics of improv to me are the gifts that your partner is giving you, then taking those gifts and adding information. So um, things that are going to establish and move the scene forward right away, you know, naming naming your characters, declaring the place that you're at. They say a lot... Um, just say that. Just say the thing. Uh-huh. I think a lot of improvisers come out and are just kind of nebulously standing in a space and just sort of vaguely talking. It's yeah. totally okay, and it actually helps mm-hmm. in an improv scene if we just we just name the thing. And just, we say where we yeah. are. We say who we are. We declare who we are to each other, and then the scene can really get going. And I remember you saying that that yes, and to that. I remember just mm-hmm. visiting one of my uh, acting one classes here at DU and sort of saying the beauty, the, the freedom of improv is that you, you aren't constrained by the rules of a scripted piece. You are the one creating the rules. So I would imagine once you sort of establish that, hey, we're in Cairo, <gasps> like that's exciting because then all these details pop up about being in Cairo, whether well, or not you've actually been there. And it's funny along those lines, I think it's easy to get caught up. It, 
having every possibility open to you can be scary rather than freeing. And Mm -hmm. I think as an improviser, it's best to tune into um, allowing that discovery to move you forward rather than say, rather than getting caught up in your brain of like, I don't know where I am and I don't know who we are and I don't know what we're doing. That's what I love about improv is like, let's just go with it. Let's build this together. We're building this thing together. And we've talked about constraint actually being freeing, right? That in some ways, the more constraints you put on something, like if you can't speak English (laughs) during a scene, like in some ways you're like, Oh, thank goodness. I don't have to like worry about whether I'm using the wrong word (laughs) to Mm -hmm. describe this thing. Um, and it also directs your attention to all the other things you need to do, like all, all the more. And I think that from a, a sort of, again, from a mindfulness standpoint, you know, that I think part, the first part of the yes and the yes is a sort of receptivity, right? An openness to other, what other people sort of have to add. And is one of the things like there are a few books out there that are like, why improv makes you an amazing, better person. Um, and I think the yes and is a huge part of it. And actually like, so Anne yes ends me all the time on the podcast, I notice. <laughs> and my Excellent. sister yes ands even more when she disagrees with people when she's having conversations with when she disagrees with people she's like and it's really hard to yes and instead of yes but in real life Mm -hmm. like you know like sometimes if you're like oh no I'm doing improv I know that I need to yes and but in real life you're like "Uh uh-huh yeah I agree with you but here's why you're wrong and it changes the entire tenor of the conversation if you're like yeah I, I agree with you full stop and additionally let's talk about this other thing you know Well, it comes down to kind of an idea, if this is true, then what? Um, One of the biggest kind of light bulb moments I had involving Yes And, it was at an impulse rehearsal, and my scene partner was like, let's make a taxi cab with butt massager seats. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. We should do that. And the director stops. He's like, no, stop the scene. Stop the scene. John Hmm. Bauer is his name, like older man, chain smoker. Like imagine (laughs) this. He smoked downstairs in the wind coop long after it was not allowed. Um, But he's smoking during rehearsal. And he's like, stop, 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 stop. Jessica, do you think butt massaging chairs in a taxi cab are a good idea? And I was like, no, that's a terrible idea. You would be sued. And he's like, yeah. So don't agree with Skip. Skip's idea, his character's idea is a stupid idea. It doesn't mean it it means that, yeah, his character's an idiot. It means his character has bad uh. ideas. It means my character, as a slightly smarter human, should object to that. I'm not saying we don't run a taxi cab company. I'm not saying that uh, Skip doesn't want to put in the butt massager chairs. But that's a bad idea for a business, and my character needs to be smarter than that. So it's like, don't just follow the path yep. of dumbness. React yep. for real. Let's play with matches. No, that's last time you burned your hand off, Anne. You only have yeah. one hand left. So, so you are still yes-anding mm-hmm. even if you start with a no. Yeah, and you're, you're continuing to kind of build the details. You're particularizing. We talk a lot about mm-hmm. specificity and particularizing. So you're still adding specificity. You're not saying no to the yeah. whole idea. You're just saying, hey, yes to 90% of it. And let's think about mm-hmm. this it, 10%. This is a world where butt massaging chairs are sometimes installed in taxi cabs. But we get to decide if that's a good or bad thing. Yeah. If it's true that those are installed, then what? then my company gets sued. Like I yeah. like the idea of building rather than needing to just pile on all the shit and yes it. Right. You can be uh, slightly discerning in discerning. what you take. Yeah, that's helpful. That's the first time I've en- ever heard someone sort of qualify the yes and, um, but still say yes to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, does, um, how does your improv training make you a better scripted actor, if it does? Um, I think it's, it's definitely given me the freedom that I know if something goes wrong, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, I think that little part of 
there's a little part of my actor brain that exists when I improvise, and then there's a part of my improviser brain that exists when I am in a scripted play. And I think that little piece keeps me from totally freaking out because I know you know them, right? You know the circumstances of the world you're in. You know if you've done your homework, you know everything that's going on in the play. So you should be able to, as an actor, if something goes wrong, someone goes up on their line, you drop a prop, you do whatever. Take It happened. Take it and let's move on from here. Whereas I think that there are some actors who could be in that moment and totally freeze or like, well, this isn't my actual line and we become these little actor robots. Um, <laughs> so I think improv is what really helped free me up and realize that yes, there is a script and I need to follow it, but if something happens, I'm okay with being able to move this thing forward. Well, and I think for me, the confidence comes in in performance, but more importantly in the audition room, because uh, doing improv makes you make a huge character choice right off the bat, uh, rather doing successful improv. So I know that if I go in with a strong point of view and my callback, and I am determined to tear this person to pieces, that's my point of view, Mm -hmm. boom, that Mm -hmm. callback feels great. Mm -hmm. And then if I take a direction that's like... objective, by the by, just mm -hmm. side note. Tear a person to pieces. (laughs) And then so Anne might be my uh, my director and be like, hey, maybe next time lull them. As an improviser, I get all kinds of terrible suggestions all the time. Not that that's bad direction, Anne. But I Thanks. can... I know. Please hire me someday, Anne. Um, no, but I can make that work. Like, if I get wacky suggestions from the audience, like, yeah. you, my suggestion in a game of... The dating game is a sloth. Okay, I'm going to commit to that sloth 100%. So I'm able to take direction, apply it, and also know that if I screw up, I'll live. We've had so many disasters in shows. Lauren got stuck in a hole on stage one time. <laughs> oh, a literal hole or the show. imagined hole. No, an actual uh, oh. a divot on the stage that oh, I just I walked too far the on the side of the no during the during the scene, and I we were it, we were in <laughs> Jessica's kitchen. And I walked too far, and then I ended up in the hole, and then we just made it part of the scene, and Jessica's kitchen needed a remodel, and why haven't you gotten work done on your house? And then we won the show, Mm -hmm. and got free tickets to another show. My college improv teacher used to say, and this is again another like qualification on the yes and, is she used to say that if one person starts a scene by digging a ditch, the worst thing you can do is grab a shovel and join them. Like that's just not going anywhere. Like you're not adding anything. Now you're both just digging just a ditch. people digging a ditch. So I think that's hilarious well, that I you were in a hole. I want to piggyback <laughs> a little on what Jess said too, because I think that's a great point about auditions. I would say too, if you're an actor who auditions at all for film and television, there has been a huge I feel like over the past few years so many of the auditions now are just improvise it Mm -hmm. and um, it's helped me a lot with that because you really need to on camera be able to take those things really quickly so so we've talked a little bit about um, sort of presence um, being a little bit I've talked a little bit about how it might be related to mindfulness we also talked about how it might be related to what a lot of people call flow um, and being in that state where you're like attention is captured you're not overwhelmed you feel like it's achievable but it's you it requires all of your mental energy to do it well and so it's a satisfying balance of like not being overwhelming but not being boring if that helps you or any other thing that 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 sort of helps you, feel like what what's it like to click into a really good improv scene like can you 
do you have any like theories about like, you know, or maybe a story about a time where something like really clicked super well, or like, can you tell what it is about a scene that makes it click or what makes the disasters happen? Well, I think when you, when, when it's going well, the, the pieces start to fall into place. Like remember that scene in the matrix when the code is coming down and it slowly starts to build Chicago, Mm -hmm. like out of the little ones and zeros, boom, 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 we get the set filled. And that's to me when improv is successful is we go from nothing and then Lauren reaches out and opens up a refrigerator and I start to see part of the kitchen. And then when she goes to the sink to wash her hands, another part gets revealed. And it's those chunks sort of falling into place. And I'm like, I know who I am and I know where we are and I know the truth. And like one of the great things that happened with Lauren is we had a scene, and I think um, this is when I was teaching improv at DU, so DU students were there. And we were kids hanging out in the kitchen drinking Izzy's. And I got mad at her, and so I crushed my Izzy in a fit of rage because I was imagining the aluminum Izzy can. Sure. And Lauren, in her brain, sees glass Izzy, and she yeah. goes, those are glass. So rather than going, no, I have a metallic, I just start yeah. screaming as if my hand was ripped to shreds. And for the rest of the scene, my character had bandaged or the rest of the set my character had all these bandages and was like actively bleeding because the second Lauren said glass my brain went yeah it is scream and so these imagine these images pop into your brain that fill the world that fill the refrigerator and make your hands bloody and Mm -hmm. you begin to see a different Izzy There's there's a trap with scripted work there's a trap with any actor uh who kind of puts up these boundaries that don't need to be there where you go, my character would never do that, right? My character, clearly my character is always happy. Why would they ever yell at someone? Or mm-hmm. clearly my character is, what's another example? Clearly my character is not hungry. <laughs> so why would they eat here? Clearly they would never behave this way. But but when you have someone next to you constantly giving you new information, it forces you to kind of go, oh yeah, sure. Why not? Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Unless it's butt massage seats. <laughs> So wait, is there any such thing as, is there a solo form in improv? Like a lot of what you're talking about is bouncing off each other. So what, how do you do it by yourself? I've seen a couple people in town actually in Denver do, and I mean, it's basically just like Chris Grop Mm -hmm. did solo prov there for a minute. Um, He, (laughs) yeah, it was basically more monologuing than, but he was he's a very physical improviser so he still kept those elements in it's not something so much of what i love about that is the rapport so i it's not something i would personally want to attempt but i have seen it done yeah i wonder what then like what then he is reacting to it or is he reacting to his own like he makes a strong physical choice and then that spurs something else in him or is it more bouncing off the audience maybe i don't know for those i almost see all these happy accidents happening one thing like improvisers our brains whirl so fast and it's constantly going and sometimes you trip over your own words and you say something that isn't is a mistake, but we prefer to think of it as a happy accident or the thing that's interesting. It starts to sparkle. Like the yeah. the, the glass Izzy was the interesting thing in that scene. Yeah. Um, so there's some improvisers. Jill Bernard out of Minneapolis does Drum Machine, a solo musical. Paul Valancourt out of LA does a one-man improvised movie. He and, and these are top-notch players. And just to be able to generate from their own brain is terrifying wow. to me. I prefer I prefer having Lauren next to me at all yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, can, you made up a form called Improvised Book Club. Can you just tell us what that is? Sure. Uh, Jessica and I learned pretty early on about each other that we're both pretty big lit nerds. Um, it, you know, our, like I said, our first group that 
was the improvised Jane Austen, and we both really enjoy um, strong character work. And so um, when we decided to improvise together just as a duo, we were kind of talking about, you know, well, what do we do? And we wanted to do something book-related, and so why not just create our own form? And uh, so we get a suggestion from the audience of a title of a book that hasn't been written, and we get a location just so we have somewhere to be. And uh, we cut essentially cut between the two people who have read the book or are reading the book and then the book itself. Mm -hmm. And so uh. it gives us a way to do all of that character work that we really enjoy and then also still have the grounded reality of the people and then we can get as heightened or as crazy as we want with the book because that could be any genre. And so it's a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of morphed over the years a little bit, but uh, it's, yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a really fun form for us to play with and then Required Readcast kind of came out of that. Yeah, that's my next question. Can you tell us and our listeners about your podcast, Required Readcast, and how to listen to it? Well, uh, we we have been podcast fans for a while. Lauren got me onto My Favorite Murder, and we like to listen to Spontaneous Nation with Paul F. P. F. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins. So funny, such great improvisers on it. But um, there's a lot of podcasts about improv. So we're kind of like, eh, we don't want to just be preaching to the choir because it's a very small community. Of <laughs> like It's a national community, but we are small but nerdy. Um, so we're like, well, how can we have improv and have the banter and great rapport we have and talk about something? Oh, books we all had to read. Yeah. Everybody had to read To Kill a Mockingbird. So many people have working knowledge of Charlotte's Web that that allows us to riff, talk about things that we love, but also play and just spend time talking with each other about things that have a more broad appeal. And it is. It's a like... It's a pretty universal, and what we're finding is there's people who are tuning in and listening to it who they'll see the title of the book and they're like, oh man, I remember when I had to read that in sixth grade or whatever. And so it's a good connecting point for people who maybe wouldn't have any interest in us talking about improv, but could be more interested in something like that. And um, it's been fun topics to explore, for sure. Well, we all had a reaction when we had to read things in high school. Like, you loved yeah. it or you hated it. Usually, high school readers hated assigned reading. So it's nice to visit it as an adult and be like, oh, that was great. Or, or get those reactions from friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we both listened to it as we were preparing to do this Aww. podcast. We were like, we need to find ones that are like a little bit different, and we were interested in especially ones where it was two women to sort of figure out, and we both thought it was great. So I love two, the two-female podcast mm -hmm. host model is great. Most of my favorite pods are two female hosts. Yeah, why are we so awesome? Uh, we just are. <laughs> yeah, Jessica's into an, got me into another one called Everything's Coming Up Simpsons. It's a <gasps> Simpsons episode podcast, wow. and it's two women also, and they have guests and they, the guest gets to choose which episode they'd like to talk about. And um, so that's another great one. I might choo choose to download that <laughs> right should. Now. I think they've done that episode. Girl, they had Nancy Cartwright on one episode and she would just bust into Bart voice every so often. It's an incredible podcast. Um, because that is a little tidbit for our podcast as we try to find a Simpsons reference to each book. And we've been able to do it most times so far. It's amazing how many pop culture references are on The Simpsons. But you haven't done Johnny Tremaine yet. Not yet, but that's the one I'm most excited about because he's Johnny Deformed. They should have called him Johnny Deformed. I still have my copy of that book from the fifth grade, and I love it. But we did just discuss The Crucible, and a huge reason we wanted to was because there's the three-minute short Easy Bake Coven. Um, 
So please check that out and then listen to our episode of The Crucible. Oh my gosh, all the puns. I love it. I love it. So if people are like, where is this podcast? How do I get it? Where do they go? Oh, we are on iTunes under Required Readcast. If you can find us on all the other social medias, at REQ Readcast. We're on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook. So give us a like and a follow. We'd really appreciate it. Yep. And it's hosted by Podbean. So if you don't use iTunes, they have us on, um, we're on Stitcher and Google Play and all that fun stuff. And we're sponsored by Sexpot Comedy, which is a really great uh, comedy organization here in Denver. Fantastic. Thank you so much for allowing us to interview you. It's a privilege. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Thank you both. Oh, I just moved the mic away from Lauren. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted to say thank you louder. (laughs) Well, then I'll say it again. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye-bye. And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word. As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do just a little bit of social media-ing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye.